Hey, everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. My guest today is Dr. Laura Bruce, and she is an expert in treating OCD and other anxiety disorders. I learned about her from another guest on the show, a frequent guest who has a monthly slot, Dr. Doug Lyle. And whenever he has a very difficult case of OCD or somebody with specific phobias, he sends them to Dr. Bruce for treatment. She's currently full, has a waiting list, but she has so much wonderful information to share on these disorders that seem to affect so many people. Please welcome her to the show. It's so nice to have you on the show. Thank you, AJ. It's so great to be here. I'm really excited. Yeah. So, so maybe we should start with a definition. What is OCD? Yes. Um, OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder is a syndrome it's, you know, affects people of all ages, all walks of life, um, and refers to when a person gets caught in a cycle of obsessions and compulsions. So let's define those terms as well. Obsessions are unwanted intrusive thoughts or images that usually trigger very intense anxiety um, or distressing feelings. Compulsions are behaviors that people engage in to try to get rid of that anxiety. Um, and so sometimes um, these compulsions can be really obvious to other people, like washing hands over and over again, checking the oven over and over again, um, not stepping on cracks on the sidewalk, but often they're completely internal and inside an individual's mind where they're going through a sort of torturous process of trying to reassure themselves that something bad won't happen um, or engage in other mental rituals to avoid a catastrophe. So can somebody just have the O or just have the C or maybe they have both? There, <clears throat> there was for a while something that people were calling pure O, which is essentially just the obsessions, not the compulsions. But most OCD specialists actually believe that there is no such thing as pure O. It's just that the compulsions are, like I said, internal. Um, and so they're not, they're not obvious, maybe even to the person who's doing it, that that is a compulsion. I'm curious, why are you so interested in this disorder? Well, um, I went to graduate school. I got my PhD and I worked in a lab where we studied anxiety disorders in general. Um, but I actually never treated anyone who had a diagnosis of OCD until my postdoc, which I sort of ended up there um, by chance in an OCD specialty clinic. And once I treated my first two or three clients, I was completely hooked because um, the treatment worked and it worked really quickly and was very effective. And if, if you are if you've been in a lot of therapy or if you're a therapist yourself, you know that oftentimes uh, progress is slow coming or maybe not obvious at all. And this was such a stark contrast to some of the other therapy that I'd been doing or I'd been exposed to. So it felt really good to see that you're making a difference and to have it happen fast enough where you could be pretty sure it was, um, it had something to do with you. Well, I'd love to know what the treatment 
is for, because I know so many people that have it, including myself to a certain degree, but I'm curious, is OCD a genetic disorder or can people develop it in life because of circumstances or maybe a little of both? Yeah, so um, it's clear that OCD definitely has a very strong genetic component um, and, and is heritable. Certainly sometimes um, it is activated by a traumatic event and, but most of the time it is totally um, unclear to the person why they're having the particular obsessions that they are. Um, and, you know, maybe I could go through what some common <clears throat> obsessions and compulsions are. Um, so common areas of obsession include contamination by germs, by chemicals, um, bodily fluids. They're also very commonly violent obsessions, like will I impulsively hurt someone? Um, responsibility obsessions, will I be negligent and someone else will, will get hurt as a result? Um, this can also take the form of sort of perfectionism um, you know, concerns with exactness, with not losing any important information, um, with evenness, with symmetry. We also see a lot of sexual obsessions. So unwanted thoughts about acting on a sex impulse or acting sexually aggressive or harming children or relatives. Um, religious and moral obsessions are really common. Fear of offending God, damnation, blasphemy, um, excessive concerns about right and wrong. Um, and then uh, identity obsessions. So how do I know that I'm really, you know, um, gay? How do I know that I'm really straight? How do I know that I'm not trans? How do I know that I actually am trans? You know, these sort of um, gender identity and sexual orientation questions, OCD can very much latch onto those. And then finally, there's what we call the existential themes, which are how do I know what I'm perceiving is actually reality? How do I know I'm not in the matrix? You know, how do I know my relationship is really what it seems or as good as it seems? Um, how do I know that this memory I have actually happened and it's not a false memory or vice versa? So these are all the kind of most common obsessions that people with OCD come to see me about. It seems that there's maybe an intersection of OCD with what Dr. Doug Lyle talks about hyperconscientious nutcases. <laughs> Definitely. Um, <clears throat> I love his term, you know, HCNCs. Um, I definitely, my clinic is populated with hyperconscientious nutcases. And um, and we mean that affectionately, by the way. Absolutely. absolutely. And, and, and we can go far in life, especially great employees, don't you think? And they also make great clients. I love, I love my clients. They are really diligent. They're on time. You know, they are hard workers. They're absolutely a joy to work with. Um, but, and in general, highly conscientious people are a joy for everyone to work with. The only joy that's lacking is, you know, internal, the sort of hell that they're going through as they sort of try to manage these intrusive thoughts. Um, through rituals or through compulsive behaviors. So <clears throat> I talked about, you know, all the obsessions, the compulsions, I'll also give a little quick rundown for people, you know, excessive watching, washing, sorry, excessive checking that nothing bad happened, you know, checking the oven, 
checking that the candle is burned out, checking your lymph nodes to make sure you don't feel a tumor, um, repeating body movements or routine activities or doing things a special number of times that feels good or feels safe. Mental compulsions like reviewing events, praying to prevent harm, maybe counting while doing, an doing a task or activity um, so that you end on a good or right number. Maybe if you work out, you really like to end on a particular number of reps. Um, excessive ordering or arranging things in the environment <clears throat> or even confessing um, to people all of your bad thoughts um, to get reassurance. These are all sort of the most common compulsions. So you mentioned, you know, hyperconscientiousness. If you are really, um, that's one of the personality characteristics that's associated with OCD, industriousness, orderliness, but also conscientiousness includes the overestimation of, you know, worst case scenarios. Um, and certainly OCD, you know, it may seem really out there, the stuff that people are, are worrying about, even to the person with OCD, they'll say, this is really wacky that I even worry about this. I know it's an incredibly low probability event, but I can't stop thinking about it and trying to kind of prevent it from happening anyway. You know, it's so interesting. You just mentioned overestimation of the worst case scenario. And just this week, we had a felon on the loose in my city who, when he first uh, shot three people and killed one, was literally blocks from my house. And so I'm texting Dr. Lyle and I'm worried. And he's like, he's like, he, it seems like nothing phases him. He goes, oh, you have a bigger chance of being killed in a car accident. But, but I mean, isn't like a felon on the loose something to be worried about? Like, I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean you have OCD, right? I mean, I think I think everybody was worried about that. But he makes it sound like, eh, you know, the sky isn't falling. Whereas for me, the sky is always falling. Yes. Well, um, certainly there's some, you know, there's some fears that we also are more prepared to indulge. So they've done studies where they show newborn babies you know, they can't even perceive color yet, just black and white. So they show them these little black and white images of different shapes. So they'll have the shape of a, a star or a moon or, you know, a random blob. And then they'll have things that are the shape of a snake or the shape of an insect or a spider. And even little babies will react to the snake and spider. So they've never seen a snake. They've never seen a spider, nor has any adult told them, hey, this is a really dangerous thing they come pre-prepared, you know, wired through evolution to have a fear reaction to certain stimuli. So dangerous people were one of the most, um, one of the most significant threats to people throughout evolutionary history. So I think, you know, I heard somewhere you're more likely to die from a coconut falling on your head than a, than a shark attack, but we are definitely more prepared to fear a shark. Um, than a coconut. Yeah. You, I'm curious when you mentioned about the genetic component with OCD. So how early does it manifest that, that people are seeing clinical signs and that maybe a parent would take a child for treatment? Sure. Um, I think that the most common ages are between eight and 12 or early adulthood. So we sort of see these two different phases of people coming in symptomatic. Um, and, and about one in a hundred, the estimates are that about one in a hundred people in this country have OCD. So that's about two to 3 million people. Wait, so um, one in 100? One in 100. Yeah. That's a lot. 
So everybody knows someone with OCD. And that's the thing, because it's very hard for people that don't have it to sometimes coexist with people that do, because they just don't get it. Like, like to me, when somebody else has, because I believe I do have it and I'm able to function, but I know people that have it way worse than me. And even though I might not have their quirks, like I have this friend that can only touch money if it's a $2 bill, for example. And if he touches something, he has to shower. And even though like, that's not my thing, like, I'm like, okay, well, that kind of makes sense. You know, whereas people that don't have it all look at us like, what is wrong with you? (laughs) Yeah. And unfortunately, um, that extends to a lot of therapists and mental health care providers. Um, I hear so many pretty sad stories. You know, I mentioned before, some of the common obsessions are quite taboo, you know, um, like what if I'm, what if I'm actually a pedophile? That's actually a common one. So imagine if you've been suffering with this fear of what, you know, what if, what if I'm actually, how do sexual predators become sexual predators? And, and what makes them that way? And how do I know I'm not one? And what if I am? And then, you know, the person with OCD might start looking for evidence that they're not and proof that they're not. And when they can't find it, because how would you even get that kind of proof? Um, they begin to spiral. You know, why did I even think this? Why did I even ask this question of myself? It must mean something. It must mean that, you know, maybe I, I am a pedophile or I have a risk factor and I'm just suppressing it. So they come into, you know, a general therapist's office and they say, you know, this is really hard for me to admit, but I'm afraid I might be a pedophile. Someone who isn't very well educated on OCD, you know, might actually take that quite seriously and perhaps even report the person um, as a risk. So, you know, this is, it's really difficult for people who don't have OCD or who don't know people or work with people who have OCD to, to understand the ways this can manifest. And, um, you know, one of the things that I always try to, you know, to tell people um, who have OCD or family members of OCD is that you know, your thoughts or the images that pop into your mind don't just represent the stuff that you like or the stuff that you want to do. Um, That's not the way the brain works. It doesn't just activate the ideas we want to pursue. It also represents the things we don't want to do um, and that we want to avoid. So lots of people have actually experienced this. If you're standing on a cliff, you know, and you have the thought, what if I just jumped? What if I just jumped off? You know, might scare you a little bit. You might even step back and think, whoa, why did I have that thought? Um, And you might be alarmed, but this is just your, you noticing your mind, which calls up not only the good ideas and the things it wants to pursue, but the bad ideas and the, the paths of action it wants to actively inhibit. So this is what's happening a lot with OCD. So does everyone have these thoughts that are maybe intrusive or worrisome? Like what if I run somebody over or is it just the person with OCD that really ruminates on it and thinks that they might actually do it? Yeah, I think everyone does have these thoughts or at least most people do. Um, You know, I remember when I had, um, you know, my son, he was a little tiny baby and I was carrying him down the stairs. And I had the thought, what if I just, what if I just 
dropped him. And it wasn't like, what if I accidentally tripped and dropped him? It was like, what if I just impulsively dropped him? You know, I just opened up my hands and dropped him. And because I do not have OCD, I thought, oh, that was weird, you know, and I sort of just kept going on with my day. Um, so I think a lot of people have these types of thoughts, but it doesn't really phase them. They don't get stuck on it. They don't ruminate about it. And they don't ask themselves the question, what does this mean about me that I had this thought? You know, that's one of the sort of big themes of people who have OCD is they, they'll have these distressing thoughts or images and they'll say, what does it mean about me that, that I had that? Well, do people that really do things like drop their babies on purse? on purpose or are pedophiles, are they worried that they are that? Do you know what I'm saying? Do they think yeah, about it? That's what I say. Way? I say, yeah. I say actual pedophiles don't usually come to therapy, you know, <laughs> terrified that they might be a pedophile. They're too busy out there doing pedophile things, you know? So people who, people who worry, you know, a lot about how do I know I'm a good person? How do I really know for sure that I'm a good person? Um, how do I know that I'm not going to make a critical mistake that's going to harm myself or someone else. Um, these are generally people on the opposite end of the spectrum from people who are intentionally um, harmful or negligent. You know, I, I don't know if this is accurate, but I remember watching a documentary about Jeffrey Dahmer and it, it was mentioned that he had OCD that, I mean, that obviously he was a criminal, but that it, it was really out of the compulsion that he couldn't not do what he did. Mm hmm. Well, I think it's important to recognize that not our not all compulsions are a part of what we call OCD. OCD is a particular pattern of engaging in what we call compulsions or rituals to try to alleviate the anxiety that comes from those thoughts or those doubts or those possibilities. Um, but certainly people can compulsively eat, people can compulsively um, check their phone, and people can compulsively do the stuff that Jeffrey Dahmer was doing, I suppose. Um, but it's not the same, it's not the same coming from the same place. Got it. Um, one of the live viewers is mentioning that she used to take medicine for OCD. Is there medicine for OCD? What is it and how effective is it? And would you take it in conjunction with treatment? Yes. Yeah, so um, there are medications um, are one of the sort of gold standard treatments for OCD um, in that they do tend to be pretty effective. I'm not, I don't want to misspeak, but I think something like, you know, 30 to 40% um, in symptom reduction is what happens on average when someone takes um, one of the medications that's approved for OCD. Um, people with OCD do tend to need higher doses of those medications in order to see the effects. So of course that can come along with a higher side effect profile. So a lot of times when people come to me, they're either on medication already and they like it and they say it's working well for me. I want to stay on it. Or they're like, it's really not doing the trick. You know, I think I need something more. Um, so yes, you can use them in conjunction. Um, but there's another gold standard treatment for OCD, which, you know, people should know about, which is called exposure and response prevention therapy, which is a non-medication, um, behavioral therapy. 
for OCD. And that's what I do. Yeah. But that, that, but that, I mean, it sounds good, but it sounds very difficult. Cause like, I have a friend that's really, really scared of spiders and the Mm -hmm. idea to have to like, like actually see a spider, I think would terrify her so much that she wouldn't even want to have treatment. Yeah. A lot of people feel that way. And certainly if you can avoid the thing that you really fear pretty successfully, um, why would you go through, you know, the pain and the expense of, of exposure therapy? Um, so, you know, it's like if, if someone who lives in the Midwest is afraid of sharks and they don't ever travel to the ocean and it's not impacting their life at all, you know, I'd say, why, why put yourself through it? Who cares? Um, but if it's something that is really impacting your life or standing in the way of something you really care about, or you really want to be able to do, um, that's when it becomes worth it to people. How long does exposure therapy take and how, I mean, if somebody is afraid of sharks, I mean, what do you actually, do you living in Philadelphia, like take them out to the ocean and look at sharks? (laughs) I would probably refer them to someone who worked uh, a little bit closer to where there are sharks. Um, But in general, you know, the main, it's not really that complicated. If you fear X, you have to confront X and not avoid X. So if you fear sharks, you have to, and you, and you really want to get over this fear for some reason, let's say your, your dream is to study sharks, you know, and then you develop a fear of them. Um, you would want to sort of systematically increase your exposure, you know, to, to sharks. It might actually start with eating some gummy candies that are in the shape of a shark. And then maybe you watch a children's cartoon that features a shark that looks kind of friendly and cute. And then maybe you move on to looking at pictures of sharks and then maybe videos of sharks. And again, each time you're sort of waiting to actually get comfortable with that stimuli before you move on to the next phase. And then people can actually really overcome a fear like that, that might've been a lifelong fear and not be afraid of sharks anymore, for example. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's, I mean, that's incredible. You know, Elizabeth, who's watching live wants to know what's the difference between OCD and perfectionism? That's a great question. Um, Perfectionism certainly can be a part of OCD, but it doesn't have to be. You know, if if you're a perfectionist, you have a really hard time with doing things just well enough. You know, they they have to be perfect. Um, And you don't really feel comfortable um, unless they are. This is definitely associated with high conscientiousness, but just because you're a perfectionist doesn't necessarily mean you are plagued by intrusive thoughts. So, um, you know, really distressing thoughts and images that are recurrent that cause a lot of anxiety. Right. So OCD is basically an anxiety disorder. Well, it's interesting. It used to be classified as an anxiety disorder um, because that's certainly the most predominant emotion that people with OCD experience. Um, But it's actually not, it's actually not categorized as an anxiety disorder anymore. Um, At its, at its core, no matter what the person is doubting, um, 
it's more about wanting certainty and really wanting to feel the emotion of uncertainty go away. And we've actually realized that it's not just anxiety that, you know, people are responding to. It could also be disgust. It could also be feelings of guilt that come up. So there are other emotions um, that can be the main sort of distress generating element of OCD other than anxiety. Hmm. Well, you, you know Howard Hughes, right? He had OCD, right? No, I didn't actually know that. Okay, well, in the movie, it showed that like he basically at a certain point couldn't leave his house. And I mean, that's my understanding that he did. But I mean, it, 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 if untreated, it doesn't just go away, right? And does it generally get worse for people? Um, I don't know that it generally gets worse, but it does not go away and it generally does not get better. Um, some people have OCD that's pretty chronic and it's, it's just always sort of the same and it's always there, but more commonly people have episodes where it will sort of quiet down for a little while and then spike up again, or they'll have one concern, maybe the world they'll be obsessing about their health and you know, do they have some kind of health condition that they don't know about? And then that one will sort of go away. And then, you know, some fear about, you know, what if I'm, what if I'm the next Jeffrey Dahmer will pop up, you know, a year later. So it's common that my clients experience their OCD a little bit like whack-a-mole, like they'll kind of get one under control and then another one will pop up. Is do you treat other anxiety disorders or just OCD? Primarily OCD, but also other anxiety disorders. So social anxiety disorder, panic disorder, um, specific phobias. Um, and I treat them all with some form of exposure therapy. Right. If you, I know that you sometimes work with people virtually. So how do you do the exposure therapy? Cause you're not being, you're not able to like take the person to the place. Yes. So sometimes I do, I say, you know, assuming they're comfortable and things feel confidential enough for them, I will say, take me on your phone, you know, let's have the visit on your phone and let's actually get out into the world. And, you know, if you're afraid on afraid of going on a walk by yourself, you know, take me and let's sort of talk through it, um, in real time. And sometimes that's not as possible and we're sort of meticulously going through, okay, what's tomorrow going to look like? What's the next day going to look like? Um, when are you going to be doing your exposures? What are the, all of the compulsions that you're going to have to avoid doing? Um, and, you know, I, in general, I sort of, encourage people who are really acutely suffering with OCD to try to live the exposure lifestyle as much as possible, um, to really be looking for opportunities to expose themselves, um, as well as devoting, you know, sometimes up to an hour a day just to do exposure and response prevention. Wow. That's a lot of work though. <laughs> yeah. It is a lot of work, but um, 
like I said, you know, this, the reason that I did it is because it's so effective so fast. And part of that is because of the intensity. Um, if you are used to kind of swimming in a sea of OCD thoughts, you know, most of your waking hours for the past 10 years, you know, doing, doing exposure for 30 minutes with a therapist once a week is really not going to be forceful enough to break some of those habits and to kind of learn, you know, learn the new information that needs to be learned and to habituate to those fears. So ultimately it ends up being a lot cheaper and a lot less money than spending 10 years in traditional talk therapy, you know, trying to figure out what's the origin of this obsession. Wow. Here's a question from a live viewer and I just saw it. Um, Stephanie wants to know, does anxiety seem to get better or worse as people age and maybe OCD as well? You could answer. That's a good question. I wish I knew the answer. I actually, I actually don't know the answer to that. Um, if I had to guess, I would guess that most people experience their anxiety as getting better, but I think that's probably because they learn how to navigate the world to minimize their triggers. So, you know, if someone has social anxiety, again, without sort of treatment or a concerted effort to, um, to try to battle that, um, and manage it successfully, you know, most people will tend to spend less and less time in environments where they feel socially anxious. So overall they experience less anxiety. That would be my guess. You mentioned that OCD affects about approximately one out of a hundred, but what about anxiety in general? And there's so many different types of anxiety as well. Yeah. Um, I don't know the answer to that, but I know that it's incredibly pervasive. Um, and, you know, with really all, all ages now, you know, we, we seem to have gone through a period, you know, in the nineties where depression was very prominent. And I don't actually know if anxiety has sort of overtaken depression as the main mental health complaint in this country, but I would not be surprised. Wow. Well, what is a, a down and dirty quick definition of anxiety? Sure. Um, so anxiety is a, um, it's not one of the sort of primary emotions. So when you think of the primary emotions, we're talking about fear, we're talking about disgust, we're talking about anger, joy. Um, <clears throat> anxiety is related to fear, but it is actually a process of recognizing that there's uncertainty um, and that you might experience a loss in the future. And that unease, that uncertainty that we call the emotion of anxiety kind of propels us to begin a process of rumination where we start worrying and we start trying to figure out how we're going to prevent that future loss. So that future loss could be, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to lose some of my social standing because I'm going to make a fool of myself, you know, when I go on Chef AJ Live, <laughs> or it could be, you know, I'm literally going to lose my life if I, if I walk over that high bridge. Yeah. Well, well there, there are 
you know, anxiety can't, I mean, I guess it could always be avoided if you just stay home and, and don't do anything. But it's interesting how uh, different people respond to different things differently. You know, for example, like I'm, there are people that won't go on my show, which I think is pretty benign compared to like, you know, maybe going on the Tonight Show or something. <laughs> you know, people that are willing to like, you know, be, take more risks for things. So yeah. one, what, what scares one doesn't always scare the other. Yeah, it's true. People, people have, you know, there's an infinite amount of things that people can potentially fear. And, you know, what's kind of interesting about OCD is that the fears are often quite unusual, or there's a sort of magical element to them. Um, for example, you know, maybe someone with OCD has the thought, oh, I hope my grandmother doesn't die, you know, and, and maybe if I tap my foot, you know, two times on the left, two times on the right, she won't. Um, it's not a delusional disorder. This person knows that there's, you know, no connection between their toe tapping, or at least a part of them knows there's no connection between their toe tapping and whether their grandmother, you know, lives to see another day. But um, they, they continue to be compelled by the fear and by the compulsive ritual. Um, and this is really kind of a deal that's being made between two parts of the person's mind. One part that, um, is afraid that grandma's going to die and feels like I need to do something about it. But another part knows well, it would be ridiculous for me to show up and for me to you know, insist that she stay in bed and, and be monitored 24 hours. And so instead, but I feel I need to do something. So I'm just going to tap my feet instead. It's sort of a compromise that the mind makes. And this is why rituals can seem so absurd, even to the people that do them, yeah. but they're sort of trying to please both parts. Let's manage the anxiety by doing something, but not do anything that looks too crazy. That's, that's interesting. A plant-powered certified nutrition coach wants to know, would nutrition play a role in OCD or aid in recovery? Well, you know, I don't know of a lot of research that's been done in this area, but my answer is sort of similar to what I would say about sleep, um, which is that, of course, eating well, eating healthy food is going to promote overall health, including brain health. and um, will almost undoubtedly help, you know, but I'm not aware of any research suggesting that dietary changes alone are enough to make a big dent in OCD. What about anxiety in general? Cause I know some people that have terrible diets with a lot of sugar, caffeine, and alcohol, but they also suffer from terrible anxiety. Yeah. So I, Again, I think it's there's going to be some portion of people that if we were able to totally change their diet, um, you know, eat really healthy foods, sleep well, reduce stress, you know, the anxiety would pretty much evaporate. But as as you know, and lots of people watching this show know, that's a very hard thing to achieve. Um, and I and I certainly know a lot of people that are hyper-conscientious nutcases who are incredibly healthy and diligent, um, 
and they do all the right things for their health and they still suffer with a lot of anxiety um, because you know part of the the health behavior itself is coming from anxiety. Yeah. I have a friend whose mother's in her seventies and she is terrified of dogs because she was bitten when she was little. And, you know, is it ever too late? For example, you know, I mean, she does allow me to bring little Bailey to her house as long as she's not running around. Like I have her on a leash in a snuggly, she's able to do that. But if you, if you haven't treated like a phobia like that, is it ever too late? Never too late. Um, I, I, have treated people in their seventies, um, late seventies who, you know, sadly were sort of in the wrong type of therapy for years and years and years and might've helped with some other things, but made absolutely no dent in their OCD whatsoever. And after about 20 sessions, their, their OCD was, you know, almost completely not bothering them anymore. So I, I don't think it's ever too late. Um, but an important thing that that people should know, no matter what age they are and they're considering exposure therapy, is that the relief doesn't happen right away. So exposure will increase your fear in the short term. So if you're afraid of dogs like your friend and, you know, I wouldn't do this, I would do it more slowly and compassionately, but let's say we just put her in a room with and made her hold a dog, Right. Um, her fear would not start to go down immediately holding this dog. It's not like just because she's holding the dog and the dog hasn't bit her that her fear immediately starts to go down. It will absolutely spike and go up for a time. But if she stays in that room for 48 hours with that dog, um, I have no doubt you know, as long as this dog is friendly and doesn't attack her, I have no doubt that she would habituate, um, which is just a fancy word for get used to um, the dog and have much, much less of a fear reaction. She might not love dogs yet. She might not, you know, choose to go play with puppies in her free time, but there's no way that she would not emerge with a significant reduction in fear. All right, let's, you know, because we talk about the worst case scenario, let's just say hypothetically, maybe this has happened, yeah. that she goes through this treatment and then the dog actually does bite her. Then yeah. is she set back to zero? You know what I'm saying? I mean, it, it's a possibility. And I mean, dogs can bite. Uh, what if that really does happen during an exposure therapy or during a shark, a shark, you know, I mean, what if the worst case scenario, see, see, because then I would say, see, I was right, Dr. Bruce. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah. So my, um, my mentor who trained me, um, he, he actually tells a story about, a, a client that he was working with who feared that with her thoughts, she might kill her mother. So if she thought certain thoughts or bad thoughts, or she would have intrusive thoughts about, you know, her mother passing, and then she would engage in a bunch of compulsions to try to neutralize it. She would say no in her mind. She would, you know, replace a healthy image of her mother, et cetera. So for her exposure homework, um, he had her actually think, you know, think her mother dead to actually think the thoughts on purpose that were distressing to her without doing any compulsions. 
Okay. So the week she was finally ready to start doing this homework, he finally got her on board. They did a long warm up period with some other exposures. She said, okay, I'm ready to do it. That week, her mother died right after she did the exposure. Wow. And so you would think, yeah, this, this is going to undermine all the treatment. This is going to be a catastrophe, but it actually wasn't, you know, she actually said, you know, this was unlucky. Um, but I know that my thoughts had nothing to do with it. So it's so interesting. OCD is really about an anticipation of a bad thing happening. Um, but it is, it is not delusional. Now a phobia of a dog, you're afraid of a dog and the dog bites you. Yes. You can say we were right. We were right only that this dog in this moment bit me, but it doesn't mean we're right about all dogs. And it doesn't mean we're right about the likelihood of dog bites in general. So we have something um, called the four house rule, which is um, refers to people who have a fear of burning down their house, you know, and they're, they're checking the stove a lot of times, or maybe even taking pictures of the stove knobs, you know, that they're off so they can reassure themselves later in the day that it really was off. So we have a rule that says, if you're doing exposure and you don't check this, you don't check the oven and your house burns down, we don't go back to checking. You know, we trust that that was unlucky. And then if the second house burns down, we also don't go back to checking. So you have to burn down four houses before you can I don't think people would wait for four houses. <laughs> that's funny. So that's kind of the standard. That's the burden of proof. So I have this thing. So I have a garage and you know how sometimes like you can hang a tennis ball from the ceiling to hit your windshield to know where to yeah. pull it. Mm-hmm. So I have that. The handyman installed it perfectly but I still have to walk to the back of my car before closing the garage. And I cannot not do it because the cost of being wrong would be, I would damage my car. Mm-hmm. And so for the second that it takes, like, I know I'm doing it and I wish I couldn't do it, but for, for me, for that three extra seconds, it takes, it's worth it. Yeah. Well, I think there's lots of people that do things like that. And frankly, I'm not that bothered by that. Um, but you know, one of the sort of rules of thumb of diagnosing OCD is that the person has to be engaging in compulsions for at least an hour a day. So, um, yeah, that's like, well, maybe five seconds. I mean, unless I were to go in and out that many times, but yeah, but I, I don't like the feeling that I can't not do it. Like, like, cause I was thinking like, well, I wish I didn't have to do this, but I can't, I just can't. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want to because the risk of, you know, because a car is an expensive thing and I don't want it to hit the thing because what if I'm wrong, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. So the, the overarching sort of way that we talk about these issues in treatment is acceptance of uncertainty. So the goal is not to find ways to be more certain. So in other words, you know, maybe you did this before you had a tennis ball and then we think, okay, we'll put the tennis ball and that way we can be sure, or we'll go just do a double check and walk to the back of the car so we can be sure. Um, the goal of treatment for OCD is to really learn to live with uncertainty and to say, well, if I'm, if I'm committing sins of irresponsibility, um, I just have to agree to be just as irresponsible as everyone else. 
who's not checking their car. Kids don't care for uncertainty. I love certainty. That's like my favorite thing. <laughs> well, that I think all of my clients would agree. <laughs> <laughs> You're funny. Rebecca says, does most OCD behavior begin as a response from a traumatic situation? Nope. Um, there's no evidence to suggest that that's even, um, you know, a very common way for OCD to begin. Sometimes it, it's clearly a trigger, you know, that kind of sets off an OCD process. Um, <clears throat> Maybe it makes it worse if you already have it. Or it makes it worse if you already have it, or if you have that genetic propensity to kind of begin, you know, the loop of trying to get certainty, then sure, absolutely a traumatic event can do it. But, you know, one of the sort of crimes against people with OCD in the in the therapeutic world is that most people are not really trained adequately in OCD, most providers. And so a very common therapeutic, you know, uh, way of interacting with clients is to look for the deep reason why something is there in the first place. So I have a fear of, you know, of acting violently. Well, is it that, you know, maybe something violent happened to you in your past, or maybe you have a deep seated aggressive urge and we need to uncover kind of where this came from. Did it come from a trauma? Did it come from your interaction with your parents? And people spend decades in that type of therapy, um, trying to understand where their OCD came from. Um, and maybe they make a little progress on that. And, and oftentimes they don't. Because the truth is you don't need to know where something came from in order to treat it effectively. Um, you know, if someone starts smoking cigarettes when they're 14, because they're kind of agreeable and they, uh, they want to be cool. So they don't say no when their friend passes them the cigarette and they're still smoking at 45, we're not going to work on their assertiveness skills. You know, we're going to work on the addiction to cigarettes and, and that's, kind of what OCD becomes. It becomes a learned sort of habitual way of responding to distressing thoughts. Um, and so that's where we work. We don't go back and try to figure out, you know, what's the trauma that got this whole thing started. Right. That's probably why Dr. Lyle likes you and refers to you. <laughs> <laughs> you have incredible testimonials on your website. I was reading them. I was thinking of reading some of them. They're, they're, they're stellar. Uh, Susanna, who's watching live has a really interesting question. Would athletes with superstitions or rituals be considered OCD, such as capping certain players in a certain order on the way to the field or wearing a certain pair of underwear? I've heard a lot of these quirks in, in, in pro sports. Um, yeah, you know, again, to, to technically have OCD, they would have to be doing this stuff, you know, at least an hour a day it would have to be causing them distress or interference in their life in some way. So probably most of the type of things that you're describing are not going to rise to that level, or maybe you're just seeing the tip of the iceberg and that person's doing a lot of other compulsions, you know, and does actually have OCD, but certainly it's, it's part and parcel of the same, the same thing that's superstition that, well, I did it once and things went well, so may as well just do it again, you know, better safe than sorry. A lot of people that are watching live talk about um, the accounting and having things be even. So does that mean they have OCD when they like to count or have things work out evenly, like a certain number of eggs or things like that? It doesn't mean you have OCD. 
it means you have some of the qualities, you know, some similar qualities maybe to a person who has OCD. Again, maybe you do. I don't know. It depends on how pervasive this is and how much it's troubling you. Um, but certainly, you know, we, we have, most people have a sort of preference for symmetry or desire for symmetry. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of people have these little things. It's like, if I, if I do something to one side of my body, if I stretch, you know, if I stretch my arm over here, I want to stretch my arm over here. Um, again, I think it's, it's, it's a similar, it's a similar process, but unless you're having a lot of distress and interference in your life, you probably wouldn't get a diagnosis. Right. How do you help the spouse of someone with OCD? Cause that can be really difficult because they, they're like, they don't, they don't get it. Well, why the spouse is rewashing something or putting things in the dishwasher. Like they, they, they get frustrated, I think. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a sort of common saying in the OCD community that if one, you know, one person has OCD, the family has OCD. Um, because, um, a lot of people with, with OCD, you know, living in close quarters with other people will, try to get those other people to kind of do compulsions with them or ritualize along with them. Um, either keeping things, you know, clean enough to their specifications. Um, you know, so if, if one member of a married couple, you know, has contamination fears and needs everyone to take off their shoes and change their clothes and immediately put their outside clothes into the washing machine as soon as they come inside and you know, they always have to wipe up any crumbs and we, we can't keep anything in the refrigerator, you know, that's even close to its expiration date. You know, everyone sort of begins following these rules because it's just easier. You know, we don't want to upset the family member and, you know, I can do this little thing and I can do this other little thing. And unfortunately it begins usually snowballs and, and there does start to be resentment and frustration. Um, not always, but that can be a problem, but the, the problem that I'm sort of trying to help family members understand is that in accommodating OCD and sort of following along with the rules, you know, doing the extra cleaning or providing the person with a lot of reassurance, like, no, you didn't hit anyone in your car on the way home. I was there. I you know, I would have noticed you would have noticed. Um, they're actually sort of feeding the uncertainty because, um, you know, doubt begets more doubt. So if I'm, you know, asking for a lot of reassurance from someone about something, my brain is watching me do that. And it's inferring that I need to do that. And so it's actually deepening my level of doubt and uncertainty. And so I try to help family members understand that accommodating the OCD is actually worsening the OCD. And in fact, their entire treatments for kids with OCD where the therapist doesn't see the kid at all. They only talk to the family members and they get the family members to reduce their accommodation. Um, and they treat the OCD that way through the family. Interesting. Do you think people with OCD often look for partners that have it or don't have it or? I don't know. I think just because it's, you know, it's, it's common, but it's not, it's still one out of a hundred. So I think most people with OCD end up with a partner without OCD. Because that would be difficult, especially if you, if you had different like compulsions, because it'd be kind of like that, that could be really an interesting yeah. combination. 
Well, I will say that um, I also have at times run a free OCD support group um, in, in Philadelphia where I live. And the amount of pleasure and relief that people feel, you know, being in a room with other people with OCD um, is sort of unlike anything I've ever experienced because these people are not just all, you know, depression is, I'm not saying anything about depression, but it's different from having privately wondered if you were a pedophile for all these years and suddenly being around other people who understood and who had had that exact same thought and that exact same fear, you know, there's so much taboo in OCD. This is why people, this is why everyone knows about the hand-washing or the light switch flicking or the oven checking, because these are not terribly taboo, but almost nobody knows about the sexual obsessions, the religious obsessions, um, the harm obsessions, because those are incredibly difficult for people to talk about um, because of the lack of understanding. The shame, they might feel shame for having those thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. Because they're asking themselves, why would a person have such a thought? Yeah. You know, my brother, one of my brothers had, I'm sure he had OCD, but I was so young and he was uh, also younger. Uh, we lived in Chicago and he was a White Sox fan. And if the White Sox were losing, he had to go downstairs and mop the floor of the basement. And then even if he was in an in-person game, he would like call us and say, "You one, one of you has to do this. I mean, you know, we thought it was crazy, but, you know, we didn't know. <laughs> yeah. And I'm bet I'm betting even if they lost, even if he mopped and they lost, he still wanted to do it next time. This yeah, is absolutely because I guess yeah. I, anyway, we didn't know the word OCD back then, but you know, we, we thought it was weird to say the least. You know, yeah, and that's why um, you know, we can't really ever prove to ourselves that our fears aren't true. You know, there's always a what if. Well, maybe they lost because I didn't mop it well enough, or maybe I missed a corner, or maybe. Maybe I wasn't thinking the right thoughts while I mopped. You know, there's an endless yeah. way in which people who suffer from OCD can fail to prove to themselves that they don't need to do these compulsions. So that's why we kind of focus on accepting uncertainty and tolerating it and being willing to be responsible, to be bad, to potentially be negligent um, and to try to live, you know, as wickedly as everyone else. It certainly is interesting. And I'm curious if there's any books you recommend for people that want to learn more about it, or if you might yourself write a book one day. Maybe one day, <laughs> if I, if I ever um, <clears throat> can be conscientious enough to actually follow through with it. But um, this book here, we can put a link in the show notes if you want. This is called Freedom from Obsessive Compulsive Disorder by Jonathan Grayson. Maybe that's backwards for your viewers, but um, this is, this is probably my favorite self-help book for OCD. Um, and it's called, you know, a personalized recovery program for living with uncertainty. Um, it's, it's a great book. It's well-written and um, my, my clients love it. The people with OCD often have other anxiety disorders, like maybe panic disorder or social, I mean, do they often come together? Um, yes, because again, the personality underlying OCD is a very high degree of conscientiousness, perhaps with some emotional reactivity or instability. And so 
if you have those ingredients, you know, you're going to be probably prone to anxiety. Um, in fact, there's sort of a name for the trait um, that means you have a propensity to feel anxious and that's anxiety sensitivity. Um, and that, that can be observed even in little babies. Um, you can see how babies react to novel stimuli to something they haven't experienced before. Um, and you will see some reactivity differences that, you know, that trait has been called anxiety sensitivity, and it does tend to set people up, you know, to be more prone to have all kinds of anxiety. All right. A lot of people are mentioning that they have pets with anxiety. I'm wondering, can pets get OCD too? I was pretty sure that I had a dog with OCD, but of course, you know, <laughs> everyone just accused me of seeing my, you know, my pet issue in my pet. So that, that could be, that could be fair criticism, but um, yeah, I think I, you know, we don't know because we don't have access to animals thoughts and really the thing that lets you know that it's OCD is not just the compulsive behavior. Certainly dogs can compulsively chew themselves or, you know, do different behaviors that we assume must be associated with anxiety. Um, but as far as actually having OCD, having intrusive thoughts and developing little rituals to make themselves feel better. I don't know. Yeah, be interesting so if interesting. someone ever you know, find We it didn't out. even get to panic disorder. Maybe you'll come back another time because I know a lot of people suffer from either panic disorder or just panic attacks. And I'd love to learn more about what causes this and how to help people with that. Because I do hear from a lot of people that they have that. Be happy to. That could yep. be the next show. Well, thank you so much for the work you do. And I have, this is really interesting to learn more about this. Yeah, I hope I hope people found it, you know, interesting or educational. Um, and I was really happy to come on. So thanks for inviting me, AJ. Oh my God. Well, thank you, Dr. Bruce. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow at 11 a.m. Pacific time when we have the author of America Goes Vegan, Glenn Merzer, along with Tracy Childs, who wrote the recipes for this book, and she'll be demonstrating them. Take care, everyone, and bye-bye.